From Santa Cruz, California, I'm Gary Shapiro, and this is From the Bookshelf. Thanks so much for joining me. My guests are Greg Glasgow and Catherine Mayer, and they are the authors of an excellent new book that tells the story of Walt Disney's plan to build a ski resort in Southern California. The book is called Disneyland on the Mountain, Walt, the Environmentalists, and the Ski Resort that Never Was. Greg Glasgow and Catherine Mayer, welcome to From the Bookshelf. Thanks so much. Thanks for having us. So excited to talk to you. I guess the title of your book kind of gives away the ending. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, uh, Disney didn't build the resort on Mineral King. But the story of how it almost happened is is really fascinating. I mean, why was a filmmaker interested in building a excuse? I mean, uh, Cecil B. DeMille or Alfred Hitchcock or Frank Capra, they never tried to build it. <laughs> Yeah. Well, this, of course, was Walt Disney, who had just done Disneyland. So he was really just starting to branch out into this kind of experiential entertainment beyond the movie screen kind of thing. So this this started just about five years after Disneyland and maybe would have been, you know, had everything gone to his plan, kind of the next big venture for them in that realm of experiential sort of in the in the moment entertainment. Yeah. And, and something important to note about him is he actually was a real genuine fan of nature and wildlife as well. And we go into that a lot in our book, but you know, that was something that he, he really wanted to create. He wanted to kind of make this area. And in this case, it was Mineral King, California, which is where he was developing this, but he had called it like, you know, the most beautiful place he'd ever seen. And he really wanted people to have access to it because you know, at that point, they really did not. So, uh, so yeah, we, we, we delve into that quite a bit in the book, but again, this was actually a very genuine venture for him. And so did he want to build a Disneyland up there? Would there be rides and the three little pigs? And So, um, yeah, right. Um, I, that was the fear. And that's a lot of kind of what we, we of course talk about in the book. And that's kind of what our title hints at a little bit is, you know, was this going to be a Disneyland on the mountain? And it really wasn't, it was more about, of course it was skiing. We talk about it being a ski resort, but it was going to be kind of this area where they're going to actually have like wildlife kind of nature walks and, you know, here are some of the animals, here are some things to learn. It was going to have sledding, it was going to have ice skating, that kind of thing. It, you know, a lot of family friendly things throughout the year, kind of with the nature, beautiful backdrop um, as its backdrop. And, and yeah, I mean, it was also going to have shopping, a lot of restaurants, a movie theater, playing Disney films, of course, things like that. The one thing, even though we do say it wasn't going to be Disneyland, there was one um, attraction that they did start to create for this Mineral King Resort, which was going to be this bear of audio animatronics um, bears. And they were going to sing, they were going to dance and play instruments and perform for the guests at this Mineral King Resort because, you know, of course, bears would come out of the woods. That would make the most sense. And for fans of the Disney parks, they might recognize this idea as the Country Bear Jamboree. So that actually ended up, obviously, at the other Disney parks. Well, I really loved when you took the time to tell the story of Mark Davis, the animator who created the Country Bear Jamboree. and. Uh, and all through your book, you take the time to tell us the stories of the people involved. And that's one of the nicest things about it. 
Uh, so the the country bear jamboree. One thing you mentioned when you talk about uh, Mark Davis presenting this idea to Walt is that he raises his eyebrow, which is his way of saying that he doesn't like the idea. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so he wasn't necessarily committed to having a ride there, or or he just didn't like the initial design. Which was that? Well, he was. Yeah. I mean, he. I think it was just sort of Mark Davis tried the story that goes that he tried a sort of a million different iterations of what this was going to be. All he knew is Walt said, "Let's have some." you know musical bear basically <laughs> so he had a dixieland band and a one-man band a mariachi band marching band all these things and kind of each time he presented to walt was sort of eyebrow went up like that's <laughs> not quite that's not quite right but you know eventually he hit up on the design that what that walt liked but i think it took him you know several tries to <laughs> to get there i love the country fair jamboree and i i miss <laughs> it it's gone now and, and yeah like yeah. yeah, I know. Sad. It's gone from Disney. It's actually still in Walt Disney World, believe it or not. So, but Disneyland, it's been mm-hmm. gone. And they actually, in Disneyland, ended up theming this big area around the bears, yeah. um, which was interesting. So, and some of those ideas were very Mineral King-ish at the time. When they weren't sure if Mineral King Resort was going to happen, they said, let's kind of create this land and this area very bear centric. It was called Bear Country, or right? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, I remember it well. Um, and, and you also point out, and I thought this was really fascinating, that uh, the California Adventure, the park that opened, I think, in two thousand, which I also love, uh, and, and and has a hotel. I think the hotel is based on the Iwani Hotel, but, but maybe I'm wrong. And, and and that a lot of the ideas from the Mineral King Resort ended up as part of the California Adventure. Yeah, I mean, if you look back at what the plans were, I mean, even, yeah, that Grand Californian Hotel really sort of looks like maybe what something in Mineral King would have looked like with this kind of rustic ski lodge kind of feel and some elements that really celebrate the wilderness there. And then within the California Adventure Park, there's, you know, the Grizzly Peak area and some different areas that feel very wild. And they even have the Redwood uh, Challenge Trail, which is sort of a, you know, it's not really a, a ride per se, like most things in Disney. It's a little kind of adventure park that kids can wander through at their own pace and, you know, climb up fire lookouts and look at maps and stuff. And it seems maybe very similar to what might've been in Mineral King. Uh, What might've been that's, you know, that's really the interesting question. And the fact that Walt Disney died in 1966 meant that a couple of things didn't happen, including Epcot, the way he had envisioned Epcot. Right as an uh, experimental prototypical community of tomorrow. Um, do you think Mineral King might have happened if Walt hadn't died? Yeah, it's something that we we certainly have asked ourselves a lot when we were writing this. And I think that we're very curious, obviously, to see kind of how this would have shaken out, certainly, if Walt had lived. Like you said, he died pretty suddenly and unexpectedly in late 1966. So we're only like a couple years really into Disney planning this Mineral King Resort. And at the same time, they were planning the Florida project as well, which of course then is Walt Disney World. So yeah, I mean, a lot of the opposition to the Mineral King Resort really kind of intensified after Walt died. So, you know, we often think, you know, Walt was a very likable, gregarious guy. He he was really good at talking to, to people and kind of explaining what he wanted. 
Um, and actually a lot of the environmentalists liked him um, for even years before that. He actually won a bunch of awards from environmental groups because of things he had done for the environment and for kind of bringing awareness to wildlife and, and nature. So we certainly wonder um, and kind of think that maybe things possibly could have worked out differently. I think that was obviously a really, really big blow to the project. I mean, the Disney company wanted this to continue on Walt's behalf. Certainly that was kind of like a genuine, you know, they kept chugging along. They really wanted this to happen because they wanted this to, you know, in memory of Walt, because it was really important to him. So that was really a driving force. Um, But yeah, what could have been the big question? Well, um, we're talking with Greg Glasgow and Catherine Mayer, and they're the authors of Disneyland on the Mountain, Walt, the Environmentalists, and the Ski Resort that Never Was. And uh, I wonder, you guys are a couple. You're married, is that right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and you wrote a book together. Well, how does that? How, how does it work out that you wrote a book together? Is this your first <laughs> book? It is, yeah. And we're still... We are still married, just in case, you know, people. <laughs> somehow we have not um, killed each other or you know, broken up in the process. Um, well, did no. you take turns on chapters? <laughs> did you have, uh, how did you divide up the work or what, how's that work? Yeah. We, you know, honestly, looking back, it's in a way hard to remember how we sort of did it. Yeah, yeah we sort of like took turns on chapters and somebody would get an idea for something and write it. Then we'd sort of talk it through and flesh it out and shape it. But I mean, it was a collaborative effort to the point where we look now and it's hard to remember sort uh-huh. of who wrote what or how it all happened. But I mean, it definitely worked really closely yeah. through the whole thing. Or he would put research in and then I would kind of, you know, create some of the words around it or vice versa. So, I mean, the good thing here is that there was, so much involved and so much research so it was a good thing we had each other yeah yeah and you just uh you 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 had heard about this mineral king thing and you said let's write a book had you written a book before you mean no this is your first book oh it's our first book so yeah it was it was weird i mean i think as you know i grew up being a disney person i kind of got greg into it i mean just knowing you know kind of a visited the parks a lot growing up. Um, I really am into Disney, Disney history and, you know, Walt's time period in particular, and kind of heard a little bit about it here and there, but even in biographies, you know, there's always this like one, if, if it's mentioned at all, maybe it's a couple sentences at most, like, oh, at one point he tried to build this gear that never happened. Um, and so we just kind of got to, Hearing a little bit about it, we we had seen a brief mention when we were in San Francisco, we had visited the Walt Disney Family Museum, which is great. And that kind of got us thinking, like, what exactly happened? We're both journalists. We're both very curious type people. So we just, we started researching it and then realized, oh my gosh, like, this isn't just this small thing that happened. And then, you know, it never happened. It was actually like, wait, there was this huge battle, huge environmental battle it went to the supreme court this lasted for years i mean nearly two decades really and we couldn't believe that there had never been any kind of book about it so we thought let's try it <laughs> well i'm glad you did i mean i'm yeah. also, uh, i'm also a uh, admirer of walt disney and his work and yeah. on film and uh, outside of film and uh, and i've read lots of stuff and visited disneyland often and been to disney world a couple of times uh so i was really happy to discover your book and and 
it's it's great. It's really well written, and I think oh, thanks. people like us would really enjoy it. And obviously, you come to it from that kind of love of of Walt. And it is kind of ironic that it was environmentalists who stopped the project because, as you were saying, you know, through Disney films by anthropomorphizing animals, yeah, people aware of animals, and by making his uh, true life adventures, he basically created the whole genre of nature documentaries that you know now there's Animal Planet or whatever on all all day. And Bambi, you know, started a national debate on hunting, and you know, I mean, his, his uh, he almost created the the uh, the movement that ended up stopping his spark. Yeah, exactly. That was like you said, that was like, there's a few sort of ironies in this story. And that was definitely one of them that, you know, by the time this resort was about to be built, this is in the mid sixties and the environmental movement is starting to kind of take off. A lot of, you know, young activists are now in the ranks. And these are people whose love of nature was inspired in part because they saw this horrific mm-hmm. scene in Bambi with the hunters setting the forest on fire and they watched the true life adventure. So yeah, like you said, it's like, Walt, in a way, helped to create this movement that then sort of, you know, in a sense, turned against him or against this development. So, but yeah, his, I mean, his love of nature and all that was something that we, you know, had sort of gleaned through movies, but Mm -hmm. really doing the research on this and finding out about these awards that he had won. And he was a spokesman at one point for like National Wildlife Week. So we really got a much deeper understanding of that passion that he had. Yeah. And, and one thing that was interesting is that, you know, we mentioned these awards that he won. One of the ones that he won in the 50s was actually from the Sierra Club, which, yeah. again, all, you know, ironies of all ironies is because that is the the environmental group that led the opposition and then eventually sued his his project. Now, um the 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 Sierra Club initially said okay, gave it okay, right? Yeah, yeah. They really is back in the forties. They sort of they had stopped skiing on another mountain in that area, but they sort of felt guilty in a way that they had now deprived all these California skiers of a sort of closer to home resort. So they began looking around for other areas in California. Actually, took to the air, went up in a rented plane, and they saw this Mineral King spot. And they said, hey, that would actually be a pretty good spot. So they offered that up almost as kind of a compromise in the 40s and said, you know, we are essentially we would not be opposed to skiing in this area. So, I mean, it wasn't like the most ringing endorsement, but it was sort of what they had offered at that point. And then in 65, when, you know, Disney is about to get the rights to develop this area or the Forest Service puts it up for bids then suddenly they have to reckon with, you know, the people that have been around in the club for a while saying, well, you know, we kind of gave our word on this, that they could have this place. And that's probably part of the reason they chose the forest service chose to put this up for bids because, you know, they knew that they had our blessing in a sense, but then you have the younger activists saying, you know, Hey, times have changed. That was almost 20 years ago. We have to protect this. I mean, yeah, that was another sort of, part of the story was that that shift in mindset and it it caused some some you know rifts in the club financially how much did walt disney company uh, walt disney productions or wdp or whatever it was how much did they um spend to try to develop this park 
I mean, I think the yeah. original, yeah, Billy, I mean, the original project was scheduled to come in, I think around 30 or 35 million, what they proposed, uh-huh. but you know, nothing really ever got off the ground. I mean, nothing was ever built because by the time that they essentially in 65, they want a three-year permit to sort of plan this thing. So uh-huh. that was, they brought in, you know, soil scientists and hydrologists and ski run planners and ecologists and they started drawing up plans of what the resort would look like in the hotels. And they trying to figure out how much, how many restaurants they needed to build, that kind of thing. Um, and then it, at the end of that three years was in 69, Walt had died by that point. And then soon after that is when the first lawsuit was filed that put a temporary injunction. So really, you know, they spent some money for sure. And that kind of came up later that Disney sort of said, hey, we spent a bunch of money on this thing yeah. and we've put our reputation on the line, like, let's get this done. I mean, so it's possible they spent, you know, a few million in that planning, but they really never even got to the point of, of building anything. Yeah. What a, what a, um, I mean, that, that, they must've taken a hit, you know, financially. By, oh yeah, uh, for sure. I mean, it's one thing to spend a million developing something that then returns millions, but. Exactly. And the time too. I mean, this is such a long drag, you know, this, this story kind of drags on um as far as you know we we talk about like the genesis is mostly like 1960 the story officially kind of ends even though we see a lot of we we talk about what happens in in the in recent years of course too but you know the story ends officially in 1978 so i mean this is 18 years i mean this is not a small piece of a, a piece of history this is a really massive amount of time for for disney to focus on this um, and at one point, they actually do look at another place um, to possibly develop a ski resort as well um, in a place called Independence Lake. So they also spent money there as well. Well, here's where I want to nail you guys down. So um, <laughs> in your book, you talk about how what a great thing this could have been. And you talk about this great railroad, but we'll get back to, back to that in a minute, that they were going to build and how there wasn't going to be a zillion cars there and and you know it sounds like a really great thing and then you also talk about how horrible it would have been to build the park there what a great wilderness <laughs> it is. what a beautiful place it is and and these courageous people who we haven't talked about yet who who pushed to save their environment so do you think they should have built mineral king or not I know we we certainly we go back and forth. I mean, that was kind of what we wanted to do was really, you know, as journalists present both sides. And it was kind of fun for us because we played we played both sides. We kind of changed perspective back and forth kind of throughout um, throughout the book. Every chapter kind of switches like, you know, from the point of view of Disney, from the point of view of the environmentalist. So I, you know, having had having researched it as deeply as we did and talked to both sides and talked to so many people, I think we certainly came away with sympathy for both sides. So it's, it's see, it's so impossible in a way. I know this sounds like a cop out, but, (laughs) (laughs) but for us to, to, I don't know, to, to really pick one side or the other. And, and, and one of the things we're hoping for and we're excited is that this, you know, sparks a little bit of conversation and, and, we would love to hear, you know, people who read it come away and, and tell us, like, which side are you on? So. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I will accept your deflection. <laughs> <laughs> br- br- yeah. We're taking the journalistic high road. Here. Yeah. <laughs> Staying objective. 
when I was a little kid and I went to Disneyland, I just thought the Utopia was so cool because you could drive those little cars around. Yeah. yeah. Now, when I go to Disneyland, I have already driven for two and a half hours to get there. <laughs> yeah, <you're> right. <laughs> it's the <laughs> last That's thing. Your own <laughs> yeah, as adults, it always is fun as, as children. And then as adults, no one wants to get in those cars. We drive <laughs> enough to this. That's the last thing we want to do on our vacation day. <laughs> um, and uh, so when Mineral King was proposed, I mean, it's, at least in part of the proposal. Uh, and in, in Epcot as well, there was a like an anti-car. There weren't yeah. going to be automobiles in Epcot. They were gonna, you would park below and then you would take yeah, the exactly. monorail. Um, and so what was their plan? Uh, they, where would people park? So yeah, that one of the big things, they, they modeled this in part after Zermatt, Switzerland at the base of the Matterhorn, which is a ski area that doesn't allow cars. And Walt was really taken by that, this kind of clean, timeless feel that it had. So they're basically going to build like a three-story, mostly underground parking garage right at the edge of this valley. People would drive in. And then they were going to use actually what's now the people mover in Walt Disney World. They had sort of a version of that, that they were looking at using that as a way to kind of transport people from the parking structure to the rest of the valley and at one point they the plan was that those that were just in for the day skiing would kind of get on one track and go right to the slopes the other people that were staying in the hotels they would take another track to go up to the resort and then their uh skis and their bags would be waiting in their room when they got there so very very cool Uh, and, and tell me about the railroad that had these cogs i can't remember exactly how to put it yeah, like a cogwheel railroad, something where you had sort of heard about. Essentially, it's just a regular train, but then in the track almost has this toothed kind of wheel that goes between on the train, on the between the regular wheels, and that grips onto a special um, toothed rack <laughs> in the train track, and it helps to kind of pull it up steeper grades. As opposed to having a diesel train or something like that. Well, it's a, I mean, it's it's just like a regular train. I think they just modify it with this extra wheel that just helps to pull it up steep grades a little fast. I think it's kind of like a mountain thing that yeah. you find a lot of like ski towns maybe in Europe and things like that. Yeah, of course, Walt loved trains. That was one of the... Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So that made a lot of sense for sure. Yeah, and uh, and, and, and Walt enjoyed skiing. He did. Um, he started skiing, what, in the 30s, I think? Yeah. Um, and because it was after he used to play polo and he had a, a pretty bad accident that screwed up his neck and his back. So he he turned to, I was going to say family friendly activities like skiing, but that seems equally as, da- <laughs> as dangerous, really. Um, but but he but turned to skiing. He did it with his wife and his his two girls. Um, and he always kind of joked that he wasn't a very good skier, um, which we appreciate as as non skiers, by the way, who live in Colorado. Um, <laughs> just to make you guys, that- you guys don't ski? No, no. no. <laughs> I mean, we've attempted. We both attempted, but um, like Walt, ama- amateurs. Amateur. Uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, so I mean, that was a thing too. Is that he always kind of joked he wasn't good at it, but he liked it. And you know, the at the time of them creating, you know, him trying to create this ski resort. He he wanted it to be, a lot of the ski resorts at the time was very like athletic, very, I mean, these people had to have a lot of abilities to do this. And he wanted people to kind of come to his place, put on skis for the first time, not be that great at it, but it was also going to be challenging for, you know, for 
pretty good athletes as well. So he, he wanted it to be for people of all kinds of athletic abilities and also be a destination for non-skiers as well, which was certainly, again, kind of different than anything that had existed at the time. Right. There's no ski resort, or at least there wasn't in which people who didn't ski would want to go. Yeah, exactly. Because, I mean, they even said we were, you know, we've looked through a million different reports and Disney proposals and stuff like that, obviously, when we were writing this. And at one point they had said that they actually thought that the warmer months, the summer months would actually be a bigger draw than winter months when when skiing was available. Well, that would make it unique, wouldn't it? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, Now, Walt had been involved with the Winter Olympics uh, what year was that? It was in 60. Yeah, yeah, 1960. He was um, drafted to be chairman of pageantry there. So he was, uh, you know, they wanted it was in California, May, I think for the first time for the Winter Olympics. Uh-huh. And uh, they wanted to bring a little more spectacle to the whole thing. And so they got Walt to come in. He sort of invented what we think of as like the modern opening ceremony. He worked mm-hmm. on closing ceremonies as well. And then he also got really involved with the entertainment for the athletes. So this was also one of the first time in Winter Olympics that they'd had sort of this Olympic village where the athletes all, you know, lived together and were in close proximity. So he started bringing up some of his showbiz friends from uh, Hollywood. So there was, you know, singers, dancers, actors. They brought up a Wild West show from Disneyland one night. And that was kind of where the spark happened for him a little bit was seeing the reaction of the athletes to this, seeing how this all fit together and thinking about, you know, what would a Disney ski resort look like with some of these elements that I'm doing for the Olympics? Is there a film of that stuff that he did there? You know? I think there is. There's actually a movie that came out this yeah. year. I wish I remember what it's called, but there's actually a documentary about that Olympics that just came out recently. It's, it's I know it's available on Hoopla. At one point it was. So I, yeah, people should check that out. Really yeah. interesting. I think we have a couple images, at least in the book, of Walt at the Olympics, too. Yeah. I think at one point he's smoking a cigarette. Yeah. <laughs> he was always smoking a cigarette. Although yeah. he tried to avoid being photographed smoking, I believe. Yeah, yeah that's right. right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Even though every other moment he was smoking. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that's why he died so young. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. yeah, sadly enough. Yeah, I, I remember the day he died. Actually, I was really like heartbroken. Yeah. Wow. wow. Yeah. That's crazy. In fact, like two of my heroes died in the same, you know, period of time. Uh, Stan Laurel and But um did did Walt see the uh, Mineral King as a potential Olympic site? Yes, actually, that was that was um, we did mention that a l- briefly. Is that they they did envision it and hope and hope that that could happen. Um, the the person that he that was kind of the partner as far as like developing the actual ski runs and the the athletic side of that. Um, his partner was was a nam was a man by the name of Willie Schaeffler, who was a famous skier. Um, he actually spent many years in Colorado as the the head ski coach at, at the for the University of Denver, who won championship after championship. And so they were making it, you know, creating it certainly as a very challenging, um, challenging place. And obviously, an Olympics certainly would have made sense. So I I have no doubt that that would have that would have happened at some point. Now, when you were working on this book, did um, did you get cooperation from the Disney company? Did you talk to people? Uh, or how do they feel about this book? We well, we'll let you know. Yeah, so <laughs> we did reach out to Disney a few times. You know, they're a little for first time authors. I think maybe it was a little difficult. So I mean, we had a few 
early conversations, but really weren't able to get, you know, the access that we had hoped, but we were able to reach out and talk to several people in the Disney kind of organization, people that were either there at the time this was all going down, or in some cases, the children of people that were there when it was going down. So luckily we were able to kind of get that perspective in there, but as far as sort of official Disney cooperation we just never really got that far well we have a lot of their documents and everything from yeah. the time so we we certainly were at least we're able to to have that that side represented yeah so well i mean i can't see them quibbling but it'd be interesting uh well, I know, you, right? you mentioned the disney family museum and the presidio in san francisco earlier and that yeah. has no disney has nothing to do with that the disney corporation has nothing to do with that museum it's kind of interesting. We That's one area that we were actually able to make some inroads as people there were super helpful to us and really actually did provide us with some information, a couple of videos, videos yeah. and audio interviews and things that were super helpful. Uh-huh. So we're not, yeah, the, the relationship there is a little unclear because it's they- affiliated. Yeah, they certainly weren't able- to Diane Disney, uh, Walt's daughter, was the one who made that museum happen. Yeah, so it's not, I don't think it's like officially with the Disney company as, you know, the the- huge corporation as we see disney but it is associated with with walt disney yeah. and his family yeah. so you know certainly yeah. disney well, affiliated but not perhaps with you know what it's, we're it's thinking not a, of. it's not under the umbrella of walt yeah disney. yeah exactly which every other part of the world by the way is right yeah i know right it feels <laughs> like that exactly <laughs> Star Wars, Marvel, everything. I know. Uh, ABC. Yeah. My most recent trip to Disneyland, I won't say my last trip because I'm sure I will return, but it was in March of 2020. Like, oh, oh week, wow. Like a week before. Wow. And I'd gone on this a tour that was available then. And I don't know if it's available anymore. It was a walk in Walt's footsteps tour. Oh, that's cool. right. Really cool. Oh, like, that's I really bet. Cool. Wow. There's a little apartment, you know, that he built on. On top of the fire station, I get to go. Yeah. Up yeah Did good. they take you up to that apartment then? Yeah. Oh, oh that's really yeah. We've cool. heard, we got heard a million that. stories about that apartment, but yeah, it's that's... a very cool little apartment. Yeah, it's really neat. I mean, when when Walt built Disneyland, his home, uh, it was far away. Now, yeah, right. Yeah. I, actually, so I remember when I was a kid, it was the first few times I went to Disneyland. It would take forever to get there. I live in I lived in Southern California, and it'd take a couple of hours to get there because there was no highway. You just drive on the roads. And then, you know, you could see the Matterhorn for like a, about a, about two, three miles away. <laughs> yeah, yeah right. <laughs> and then they built the freeway so that it would only take like 15 minutes to get there. Only now, because there's so much traffic, it takes two and a half hours to get there. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so much for progress. Yeah, exactly. But, um, yeah, uh, uh, I, uh, I haven't been back since the pandemic. Have you been there lately? When did we go? We did know there actually to do some research for the book. We went to the Grand California, like we were talking about, to kind of get the flavor of that, which was maybe two years ago, something like that. Last year? I'm trying to remember. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, it was it was cool to be there because it, and it was the time that we went was sort of right as they were winding down some of the restrictions and things like that. So they were still had you know allowing few, fewer people in the gates and things like that so well, i wish they would just do that permanently wouldn't it be nice yeah. oh my goodness it right? was nice yeah yes i have been there when it's just like way too many people and it's not yeah. Fun. oh yeah oh yeah yeah well um it, this is really a fascinating book and it's called disneyland on the mountain 
Walt, the environmentalists, and the ski resort that never was. And the authors, Greg Glasgow and Catherine Mayer. What what are you going to do next? Now you've written a book. <laughs> yes. We're going book. to Disneyland. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> are you going to, are you going to collaborate on another project? Yeah, we're definitely. Yeah, I mean, we you know this was such a learning experience and a you know trial and error thing. I think we hopefully have some better protocols down now. Like cite all your research immediately, which we, at the beginning of this, we were just writing things down. And then about <laughs> a few months in, we had to go back and sort of retrain that. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, but yeah, we are looking at doing something else. Um, we have a couple ideas kind of floating around that are, you know, in this same kind of vein. So yeah, nothing we can really specifically announce yet, but um, yeah, definitely want to hopefully do soon. something else. Hopefully soon. Yeah. Yeah. And definitely, you know, the nonfiction arena is, you know, fascinating to us. So we're, we're yeah, you, you said you're journalists. Where, where have your, where has your work appeared? Yeah. Uh, yeah. We both, I mean, we both sort of write as our day jobs and we're both freelancers as well. So we've done stuff for like observer and health, pop sugar, Denver post, Denver post, local magazine, 5280, just lots of different alumni magazines around the country, things like that. So lots of different publications. Yeah. yeah. And that, yeah. We were able to put our journalistic skills to good use. With yeah. <laughs> well, again, it's called Disneyland on the Mountain. Walt, the environmentalist and the ski resort that never was. Greg Glasgow and Catherine Mayer. When you do come up with your next book, I hope you'll make from the bookshelf a, a stop on your Thank book. you so yeah, much. Yeah, we'd love to. Thanks Absolutely. so much. Great talking with you about this. Catherine Mayer and Greg Glasgow, their book, Disneyland on the Mountain. Walt, the environmentalists and the ski resort that never was. I'm Gary Shapiro, and this is From the Bookshelf. Next up on From the Bookshelf, we listen back to my 2010 interview with Floyd Norman. Floyd Norman was the first African-American to become a regular animator at Walt Disney Studios. He contributed to the films Sleeping Beauty, The Sword in the Stone, The Jungle Book, Mary Poppins, 101 Dalmatians, as well as several Pixar favorites like Toy Story 2 and Monsters, Inc., he began his career drawing Katie Keene comics, and I asked Floyd Norman how he got from Katie Keene to Sleeping Beauty. Well, uh, luckily, uh, the Walt Disney Studio is only a short 90 miles away from Santa Barbara. So once I graduated from high school, it, it wasn't uh, that difficult to drive down to Burbank and the uh, location of the Walt Disney Studio. And I did just that. Uh, a week after graduating, I was lucky enough to to uh, land an interview with the Disney Studio, and uh, I drove down on a Saturday morning and uh, entered the Walt Disney Studio gates for the first time in my life. How old were you? Oh, 17. <laughs> <laughs> and did you have a portfolio of your work with you? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. I had I had the, the usual kid portfolio, you know, the, the the portfolio full of drawings and cartoons and sketches. Who who interviewed you there? Oddly enough, it wasn't a Disney artist. It was uh, a, a guy from the personnel department. Hmm. But even so, even though he, he was not an artist himself, the fact that he worked at Disney, uh, he knew what he was looking at. And he gave me some good advice. He said, kid, go to school. Uh -huh. Yeah. So you went to art school? Yeah, yeah. And that was good advice because I, I really wasn't ready for a job uh, in, in the uh, animation business. 
certainly not a professional job. Uh, I was just out of high school, and I needed uh, additional training and schooling, and so going to school was good advice. So you you got a degree in art? Well, even though I attended the uh, Art Center College of Design in Los Angeles, I never did get my degree, uh-huh. and here's the reason why. Yeah. In my third year of school, I got a call from the Walt Disney Studio asking me <laughs> if I still wanted that job. Uh-huh. And, of course, I became uh, an instant uh, dropout and uh, rushed out to Burbank and took the job. And, but you do think you benefited from your years? Uh, your oh, you bet. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. My, the, the years in school were, were uh, invaluable, yeah. Uh, did you do a lot of life drawing? What kinds of drawing? You know, How did it change your, your art or refine it? Well... You know, what the Disney artists always say is that uh, a young artist needs to learn the basics. And, of course, that includes life drawing and a lot of life drawing. Uh, also, uh, you need to study composition and design and, uh, and color. So um, going to art school, uh, even though um, I wasn't going to be a painter necessarily, it just provided that foundation that every good artist needs. Now, you're African-American. I'm sure that's not news to you. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm told, yes. And, and you came to work at the Walt Disney Studios. We've had three of Disney's biographers on the show here. We've had Neil Gabler on. We had Richard Schickel on and Mark Elliott. And they all have you know various views of Walt in their books. And Walt has been accused of being racist, anti-Semitic, uh, or at the, at the best, racially insensitive. And I guess yes. you could look at... You know, before you got there, there was Uncle Remus and that whole Br'er Rabbit thing. Mm-hmm. And I guess cartoons and comic books were generally racially insensitive in the 1940s and 50s. Uh, what were your feelings about that? Yeah, I think that's something that's often discussed. And I think one has to uh, uh, look at all of this in context. Um, you know, the fact that uh, the 1940s and 50s was not like today. But, um, you know, those things never offended me, uh, even as a kid. Uh, I loved Disney's Song of, the, uh, Song of the South, Br'er Rabbit, Uncle Remus. Uh, those things, those cartoons were just uh, delightful. And I never, I never saw them as being, or maybe I was just a naive kid, but I, ne- I never saw them as being racially insensitive. Perhaps, uh, looking back on it, somewhat naive, mm-hmm. but never... Uh, I never thought Walt Disney was in any way uh, hostile to minorities. And then, of course, once I came to work for Disney and uh, worked at the studio, luckily, uh, the last 10 years of Walt Disney's life, and then finally getting the opportunity to work with Walt Disney himself, uh, that gave me uh, insight that I never would have had. Uh, Walt Disney was a, uh, he's, one of, he's one of the best bosses I ever worked for. And he was certainly not uh, an anti-Semite, and he certainly uh, was not a racist. And I've had to state that on many occasions. And people will say, well, gee, how do you know that? And I said, well, look, you know, I work with him. I was there. Well, we're talking with Floyd Norman, who was an animator at Disney Studios, and uh, still you still do a lot of work. But uh, let's talk about your your early years. Your your first uh, Disney film was Sleeping Beauty. Was that the first one you worked on? Well, that was the first feature film I worked on. Mm-hmm. Well, so where, how did you start? How did they start you? As an in-betweener or what? 
Oh yes, yes. The the lowest job at the Disney Studio when when you come in as a, as a young trainee, uh, your title is apprentice in betweener. Oh. <laughs> you know, so so you're 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 at the bottom of the food chain, and uh, that's how and you work your way up. Mm-hmm. And of course, uh, back in those days, you started working on uh, television because that was kind of the easy stuff. And then if you did good on that, you might get a chance to work on the shorts or on some other uh, television material for the uh, Walt Disney. Uh, the show on ABC at the time was called Disneyland. Right. And I, I worked on, on a lot of those shows in those early days. The, and then, the, finally, if you can prove yourself a worthy, <laughs> and, this, and this takes a while, you might get a shot at working on the Disney feature, because the feature was considered the big time. Now, talk a little bit about the the Disney style of animation. The, uh, as I understand it, an, an, a character would be assigned to an animator, or, or an animator would kind of uh, mm-hmm. latch on to a certain character. Is that how it works? Well, it's like casting in a live action movie. Uh, certain animators tend to uh, excel uh, with certain characters. Like uh, some animators might be very good at drawing uh, attractive women. Uh, that's just something they do really well. Another animator might be very good at doing a, uh, a, a villain. He's very good at uh, doing a, uh, a scary character or a very nefarious character. And so uh, Walt knew uh, his artists, and he knew who did what and who did it best. And so uh, artists would just would often be assigned a particular character based on their own uh, individual uh, abilities as, as an artist and as an animator. Well, how would that work if characters uh, assigned to different animators appeared in scenes together? Oh, uh, in a way, it, it was a very good, uh, a very good dynamic. Uh, I think a good example, uh, this has often been cited, uh, there's a wonderful uh, scene in, in, in the movie Peter Pan. Uh, you've got three characters in in scene and each character is animated by a different animator you've got the the uh, little um, uh, tubby assistant uh, Shmee Mr. Shmee who was animated by Ollie Johnson then you had the villain uh, Captain Hook animated by Frank Thomas and then of course Tinkerbell was animated by, by the great Mark Davis and so here you have three animators Three very different animators working together, all in the same scene, all you know, you might say, controlling or performing a particular character, and uh, it, it was just wonderful to, to, of course, I had the opportunity to talk to these old guys when they were still with us, and uh, they would often talk about how they worked together and how they worked out this whole performance. It's like uh, choreography on paper, you see. So, uh, as an in-betweener, did you in-between their work? Did you learn from their style by connecting their drawings? I had the opportunity to work with a number of the nine old men. Uh, not all of them. I never had a chance to work for Mark Davis or uh, or a few of the others. But I did work with uh, Milt Call, uh, Ward Kimball, uh, John Lounsbury, uh, on occasion Eric Larson and Frank Thomas. So I did learn a good deal from these old guys because they were the masters. And, of course, keep in mind, these are the guys who were doing the Disney cartoons when I was still a child. So I, I saw their work on screen when I was a little kid and then uh, eventually grew up, 
you know, and uh, and came to work with these guys, uh, you know, at the studio. So you can imagine how a lot of us felt as kids having seen this brilliant work on screen, and, and here we were now working with uh, these masters. Yeah, it's sort of akin to you know, working with Clark Gable or something like that. You bet, you bet, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, so, which? Let me just ask you a little bit about Walt Disney himself. Sure. Uh, do, you, do you remember the first time you met him, and when you talked to him, and what kind of person he was, and so forth? Well, the first time I, I, I uh, my first Walt Disney sighting, I didn't speak to him. You have to keep in mind that even back in the fifties, Walt Disney had already become somewhat of a. Uh, uh, a legendary character because you know, good heavens, you you, you heard his name. Uh, eventually, you began to see him on television when he hosted the uh, TV shows, and he was just kind of this uh, legendary figure. So, a bunch of us kids were up on the third floor uh, of the animation building. Uh, third floor is where Walt Disney had his office, but we were up there for a, a meeting, and uh, we were out in the hallway. And this lone figure comes walking toward us, you know, uh, down the hallway, and he's uh, backlit by the uh, south window. So we couldn't see who it was uh, initially. And then as the figure came closer toward us, we realized it was Walt Disney himself. And it was as though, I don't know how to put it, if if it was the president of the United States or the Pope or, you know, God, or God <laughs> walking down the hallway toward us. So we, we all kind of like backed up against the hallway as, as Walt walked past. And he kind of, uh, I think he thought the whole thing was rather amusing. And And so then eventually you got to the point where you were working with him, talking to him. What was that like? Uh, it was uh, very respectful, I would say. Uh, once again, uh, keep in mind that not everybody had access to Walt Disney. So when I had a chance to move upstairs and uh, work in the story department on the Jungle Book, suddenly I had access to the man that most people would probably never get a chance to, to talk to or meet with. Mainly not because Walt standoffish, but because he was a very busy man, mm -hmm. and he just didn't have time to to go to every department. What would uh, a story What would a story session on the Jungle Book with Walt Disney be like? Uh, well, the story department was where Walt Disney focused most of his attention, and so uh, if you were working in animation, layout, or background, you wouldn't see Walt that much. However, if you worked in the story department. That's where Walt uh, focused his attention, and that's where you would you would uh, meet with him. And of course, we had story meetings whenever uh, the boss was available. Uh, again, we had to work around his schedule. Again, he had his uh, many irons in the fire. He was yeah. a very busy man. Mm -hmm. But his sessions were uh, intense, uh, pointed, and uh, and very insightful. Uh, I can't. I can't tell you what an opportunity it was for this kid. Keep in mind, I was still in my 20s at the time I was meeting with Disney, so I was still very much a kid. But having the opportunity to meet with the uh, with the story master in person and to gain his his advice and his insight, and also to get balled out by him too. Oh yeah, <laughs> I, I still consider that uh, an honor and a privilege. What what, <laughs> what had you done that that got you balled out? Do you recall? Oh 
well, uh, sometimes we we would often think that we were not um, doing our best on the movie, and uh, and would sometimes, you know, talk back to Walt and say, "Well, gee, Walt, I don't, I don't think this is a good idea, or I don't think this is working." And he would he would he would just put us in our place and, and say, "Look, this is this is fine the way it is. Don't mess with it, and uh, let me worry about it." You know. And so uh, we came to understand that uh, this guy had been around making movies since the 1930s, and uh, he did know a bit more than we did. And if we were smart, we'd keep our mouths shut and just uh, follow his advice, (laughs) (laughs) which we did. He was usually right then. He was was almost always right. Uh Um, Was there a dress code at the Disney Studios, I wonder? Uh, no, not at all. It was extremely casual. It was. We were also on a first name basis. Really? So you called him Walt? Yes. Uh, uh-huh. He insisted that everybody be called by their first name. He insisted that we called him Walt. And did he and, know everybody's name? Oh, he sure did. <laughs> he sure did. And that I found amazing because uh, when I think of all of the people who worked at that studio, and but uh, oh, he knew us all. Well, we're talking with Floyd Norman, the great animator. And uh, while you were working on The Jungle Book, that was in 1966, I believe. Right, that's correct. That's also the year that Walt passed away. Had you finished the film when he died, or we're still working on it? The film was still in production, but we had finished uh, the story. Um, we, We knew Walt was ill back in 1966, we just never realized the the extent of his illness. Mm. And keep in mind, we were still meeting with Disney throughout 1966 as we were working on story on the Jungle Book. And uh, although at times he appeared, um, you know, a little tired um, and on occasion uh, somewhat grumpy, uh, we just thought it was the usual pressure and stress of work. And... Uh, but we knew that he had some health issues, uh, mainly because of his uh, smoking habit. We we just never knew that uh, how 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 badly uh, this thing had gotten, and uh, of course the lung cancer is what eventually took his life. Were, were you at the studio at the time when you heard of his death? I was at the studio the day before. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I was away that Friday. It was ironic that uh, on that Thursday um, afternoon at the studio, I inquired uh, with one of the guards at the front gate, a guy named Bill, who was a, a guard, and I said, well, how's, how's the boss doing? How's Walt doing? He says, oh, he's uh, he's across the street at St. Joseph's Hospital. Uh, we think he went over for a checkup. And Walt had just had surgery uh, a couple of months earlier, I believe. And so when we heard he was at the hospital, we thought, oh, oh, I guess he's he's uh, you know he's doing he's doing good. He's going back just for a checkup uh, because of the surgery. And of course, the very next day, uh, the news came that Walt had passed away that Friday morning. So quite a shock then. Uh, it was an incredible shock. It was it was. Um, you know, it's funny. We we should have known better. We 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 knew that 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 the man was not well, but we just the idea of Walt passing away just did not seem real. So how did the studio change? Uh, you know, before and after Walt. Well, it it was um, 
it, it, it changed profoundly. Uh, keep in mind that this was a studio that was, uh, it was Walt's studio. He, he sort of guided every project. He, he oversaw everything that, that was done. And so when we lost Walt Disney, it's almost as though the studio sort of drifted for nearly 10 years trying to get its bearings. Like a cat, it's like a ship that's lost its captain, you know. Mm-hmm. And you think the films definitely suffered after that? Well, I think everything suffered after we lost Walt, and uh, it took us uh, a number of years of kind of floundering, trying to trying to find ourselves. And um, you know, it's amazing. It, it never really happened. I think until oh, into the eighties, and and uh, we started to to pull it together and, and begin to make some, some pretty good films, or at least the films we were doing showed potential that, that the studio could rally and that it could carry on even without Walt. And were you there uh, still at the studio when the, when the big rally you know, happened with The Little Mermaid and all that? Uh, I had been away. I mm-hmm. had been away for a while. I actually left Disney and uh, I launched my own company, for a while, so I did work outside of Disney. Now you were doing a lot of Saturday morning cartoon kinds of things, or other. I things? did. I did a bit of that. I, I, initially, I left to produce educational films uh-huh. uh, for the schools, and I enjoyed that very much. And and part of of my leaving was because it was you know it was really difficult to to continue on without Walt Disney. And I thought when I left, I, I wondered if I, if I would ever return to the studio. But eventually, uh, I did come back. Um, maybe in a way it was kind of like, uh, you know, coming home again. Eventually, I came back, and by the time we moved into the early 80s, uh, things began to change. A lot of the older guys had retired or passed away, and we had a lot of young kids coming in. Uh, young kids with some uh, bright ideas and uh, new approaches. Uh, kids would eventually uh, kind of like lead an animation revolution. Keep in mind, we had guys like John Lasseter, Brad Bird, Tim Burton. Uh, all of these guys were just kids out of school. And uh, they came into Disney, and in a way, they came in to, uh, to, lead, to lead the studio in, in, a, in a new direction. Well, so given that uh, late 60s, 70s era of animation, are you surprised that feature animation is as popular as it is now? It has its own Academy Award uh, category and so forth? Well, I think animated features have always been popular. It was pretty much uh, an area Disney had to itself for decades. You know, keep in mind, there there were hardly any competitors who could uh, compete with Disney. Uh, Many tried and, and many failed. But uh, now uh, I look at animation, and it's an incredibly robust business. I mean, we've got studios that didn't exist before who are, in a sense, competition for Disney, although I don't look at it as competition. I think it's just great to have all of this. The, the more cartoons, art. the better. Yeah, the more, the more uh, films, uh, the better. What about the, 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 the style of animation? Uh, it, it kind of went through some profound changes uh, during the time that you were working at Disney, uh, in, uh, even during Disney's lifetime, mm-hmm. um, the the style of the Jungle Book is a lot different than the style of 
even the sword and the stone, which was not that far behind it. Um, well, yeah, styles change, and and technology changes things too. Uh, a, a big part of of the change in style was actually due to economics. Keep in mind that in the early days, animation was uh, almost a totally handmade product. I mean, every drawing was drawn by hand. The cells were inked and painted by hand. It was extremely labor-intensive and extremely expensive. Now, in the um, late 50s and early 60s, we began to use the Xerox process because Xerox was cheaper than having uh, young ladies actually ink the cells by hand. So that meant you could take your original drawings and put them onto a cell? Right, exactly. The original drawings were Xeroxed onto the sheets of acetate. And of course, by doing that, that affected the film styling. And so you begin to see a change in the art direction. It's almost as though the, the, the technology influenced the, uh, the art direction of the film. So that's why the films begin to look a little different. They're a lot looser, I guess. Yeah, a lot looser and, and the more emphasis on line quality. But all of that was uh, influenced by technology and, and, of course, by economics as well. When you were doing um, animation for the Disney television show, uh, in those days the show was in black and white. Did you animate in color or in black and white? Ah, very good. A question that's, uh, that's often asked. The shows were all broadcast in black and white, but Walt Disney... Uh, was a, was a smart man. He produced the shows in full color. Because yeah, he knew that one day we would sell them on video. <laughs> exactly, yeah, exactly. Well, he knew that one day television would be in color, uh -huh. and then he knew that one day these same, these same films could be sold on on uh, a media that, that uh, didn't even exist back in the 50s. That's it for this week's From the Bookshelf. I hope you enjoyed the program, and we'll come back and see us again next time. I'm Gary Shapiro. Take care. See you soon.